Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. It's Reality Check Radio. You're on with Rodney Hyde with Real Talk. Oh, my goodness. We've got a great show lined up today. First of all, we've got, uh, well, we've got such a lot of mailbag that I split into two. How exciting is that? And first up, the interview, though, is Gary Moller, and he's responding to Ananda Card. Remember, she was the lady warning us of lead and how we thought and think it's a problem that's been dealt with. Well, it hasn't. And Gary Moller's here to explain uh, what you can do about lead and indeed um, your health generally and what tests that uh, you need to do. I'm going to enjoy that immensely because I met Gary Moller on the steps of Parliament. Trespass. Ah, it was, those were the days. Uh, Also, people have been asking me about the super city. So I don't know how this is going to go. Tane Webster is going to come along and question me about Auckland, local government, councils. (laughs) I'll be in the the seat getting the grilling. Uh, So stay tuned. Enjoy the show. Lovely to have you along. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of jobs, and there was only one job I didn't love. Isn't that crazy? I enjoyed every job I did, from picking raspberries to weeding a paddock of mangles uh, to truck driving to working in forestry working on a big uh, construction job in the Shetlands, to working on oil rigs, working in a sawmill. I loved them all. Uh, Oh, except (laughs) I got really, really sick 
of working on a construction job in the Shetlands. And the reason I got sick of it was I was only doing it for the money because I figured I needed, I was making very good money. And I felt that I worked out how much I needed to spend a year traveling on my own home to New Zealand, overland, and then to get home and have some money so I could go back to university. And I set myself a goal to earn this much money. I can't remember how much it was, but it meant that I had to stay working there for another year. And I really got to despise the job because I was just turning up, doing it to get paid. And I resolved as a very young person that never again would I work for money, just for money. Money could never be enough. It had to be an enjoyable job for which you got paid. It's the only job I didn't like because I was doing it for the money, not because of the job. And I didn't feel productive. It was a very slow job. So you can, couldn't get on and do things. That said, the jobs that I worked in were dangerous. And I have seen men injured and killed. And it's not at all pleasant. And in many ways, I very much appreciate New Zealand now because we have a heightened safety focus. And I think that's a good thing. But I don't like the way we go about it with government. And I remember sitting in Parliament one day, and there was Ruth Dyson. She was workplace safety or something minister. My God, can you imagine having a politician in charge of workplace safety? And she said she introduced some new legislation to make it more and more regulated at the workplace. And she said she wouldn't stop until there were no accidents. And you look at that and you think, it's just not human nature, that's just preposterous. And we all accept some level of risk in our days. We hop in our car, we get out of bed, and we work with it. And we do take care. But the responsibility has to be somewhat with us. And of course, you can't put people into a dangerous place maliciously or negligently. But this idea of tick boxing and form filling and safety meetings way over the top now. Oh my goodness. And in a way, it means that we take less personal responsibility because we expect to be warned about dangers rather than being ready for them and prepared for them. I notice the way people drive now. I was brought up driving that you always went around a corner expecting something to be there not moving and to take care. So you go around a corner gingerly, waiting for the unexpected, expecting the unexpected. Now, if there's not a cone warning us, we drive like a blind corner as though it's going to be as good as gold because if there was not a problem, there'd be a cone, right? And it's the same in the workplace. People just walk around sort of switched off, zoned out because if there's something dangerous, we'll be told, right? Nope. You actually have to be awake to it. All the jobs I did, I can't remember one safety briefing. But we'd look out for each other, and we were careful. But this health and safety now has become something sinister and a little scary. Because 
it's health and safety that's used to shut people down free speech. Don Brash couldn't speak at Massey University. Health and safety issues, because some people might be upset by what he said. Even though they didn't go to his lecture, they could still be upset, so we can't have him. But this latest one, on the back of Susie Wiles, is really odd, because more than 100 academics at the University of Auckland have signed a letter to the leadership that says high-profile staff are not being protected by the university. The headline says, more than 100 University Auckland academics signed a letter complaining of unsafe workplace. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't believe it when I got a job working at a university as a lecturer. I thought I had made it and got to heaven. No way. I didn't have to clock in. I could turn up when I liked. But I loved it so much I was there first thing and was last to leave. But you'd rock on up, go to your office, had a big desk filled with books, and you were paid to read them. You were paid to think about them. You were paid to do analysis of data, to collect data and write it up. Oh, my goodness, how wonderful is that? Oh, and then you'd go off to a seminar with other academics and discuss and debate the ideas you were working on. And then you'd share what you'd learned with students, which was the best part. Hundreds of students. Oh, I loved it. And they'd come and see you and ask you questions and how did this work and how does this work? And you were sitting at this desk and it was the strangest thing because I thought, man, I don't get wet when it rains. I don't don't get cold when it's cold outside. And I go to work knowing I'm going to come home in one piece. But now the University of Auckland, it's not safe because they say they no longer felt comfortable speaking publicly or to the media for fear of threats and harassment. Well, that's easily fixed. Don't. Just don't do it. If you're scared of that, don't do it. The open letter signed by 129 academics followed an employment court hearing in which high-profile microbiologist Saucy Wiles argued the university had failed to protect her from a tsunami of threats which followed her commentary on the COVID-19 pandemic. A ruling is yet to be made in the case. The open letter to the University Council says in the absence of a court ruling, academics, quote, remain exposed to psychological and physical harm while carrying out our work. As This is quoting, as racist, transphobic, anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate has been rising globally, we are particularly concerned for marginalised groups, including Maori, Pacific, transgender and non-binary colleagues. We're also concerned that recent politicised conversation around gun control, free speech and hate speech legislation, as well as public questioning of equity-orientated initiatives in university education, is likely to embolden fringe elements. What precious little pups. They're going off to university to sit in an office and they're scared for their safety. That's just insane. How do they think how do they think the rest of people go working in construction and 
all sorts of jobs that actually are different to working in an office. And how rude is it that you put ideas out into the public that will lock us down, shut us up, arrest what we can think about, stop us, divide us racially, divide us by medical status. And when we argue with you, oh, we're the nasty ones. We're all those things. We argue about that a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl. Oh, you're transphobic. It's dangerous. Oh, you're a white supremacist. Dangerous. No, no. What's dangerous are the thoughts in the university. That's a poison. That's a danger. That's a toxicity. And so strange and twisted is it that they're sitting in a cushy office and want to be protected from the world? Oh, my. Oh, my. Defund the universities, I say. I can't see what good purpose they're serving. If my kids want to go to university, they'll be sat down and they'll be writing out an essay on what they want to achieve. I can understand it if you want to be a doctor. Only way to do it is to go to university. I can understand it, I guess, if you want to be an accountant. Got to go to university or a lawyer or an engineer. But what fraction of students at a university now are doing that? And are those students that are doing that having to take other courses? gender equity courses and such like? No. Defund the universities and stop this nonsense of these precious little pups feeling scared because of the public, actually, and of being too scared to speak up. Well, no one's no one's requiring that you speak up. No one's requiring that you go in the newspaper and say nutty stuff. If it frightens you, don't do it. But how do you think the rest of us feel? How do you think it was like when we were saying, hey, we don't want to be locked down. Hey, we don't want to be jabbed. And it was the very people at these universities who were attacking us and attacking their colleagues. Or if you say that there should be one standard of citizenship, university academics would call you a racist. And that really does open you up to attack because we don't like racists. But actually, the people that are asking for one standard of citizenship, we're the ones opposing racism. Send us a text, 2057, email us. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, happy days, happy days. It's mailbag, and my mailbag is overflowing. So much so, I'm going to split it into two. So it's not my voice going on and on and on. Oh, and the first ones are the war in Gaza uh, and our John Minto interview. Hi, Rodney. Has John Minto ever had a real job or has he always just been an activist? Love your show, mate. In 2007, Hamas threw opposition party members off roofs to their deaths. It's openly documented. No mention of that, John. Cheers, Frosty. Well, uh, John Minto's always been a school teacher, as I understand it. So he has held a job. And of course, he's been a 
activist since forever, uh, his entire life. It's amazing. There's always a cause that he'll get on. But I did think the interview was good. I mean, we spoke and he put his case. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because he clearly has a rose-tinted view of people's behavior that somehow if the Israelis welcome the Palestinians in, uh, there will be peace and flowers and happiness. Uh, not so sure about that. Uh, number two, Palestinians are not required to do military service, but they're allowed to. Oh, good point. I didn't know that. Some of Israeli Israel's top judges are Arabs. That's correct. In fact, I believe it was an Arab in their Supreme Court that's been given the government uh, hang over things. Uh, number four, what's his thoughts on the, how do you pronounce this, Ugar, Ugar population in China? It does seem a bit selective, doesn't it? It's things that involve the West or the British or the Americans. Uh, John Minto is such a liar. RCR perhaps should not give oxygen to spreaders of hate. I hope Israel prevails against the evils of Hamas. Me too. But I'm very conscious how I was labelled through the COVID era, era. And then I have seen other people so labelled. And when I've had them, heard them interviewed, oh my goodness, I have so changed my mind about them, even if I don't agree with them. And in a funny way, I changed my mind about John Minto because he wasn't, he was very reasoned. He's just got a different set of facts to us or a different understanding of the history and a different understanding of human behavior to me. Here's an example. I was, um, I had a bad attitude to Dr. Mel Matt Shelton. And I realized it was just from the headlines. And then I heard an interview of him. Oh, my goodness. He is amazing. He is amazing, man. And yet, somehow in my subconscious, just skipping headlines, you get told not to like him. And then you hear them. So I think we should be open to everyone speaking. And we'll call them out. No, John Minter was wrong about the name. King Herod named it Palestinia after the Philistines. Yes, I understand someone told me Arabic doesn't have a P. I don't know if that's true. It's interesting to note that there's a difference between Zionist Jew. One doesn't need to be a Jew to be a Zionist, Zionist, and a person of the Jewish faith. Correct. Israel is ruled by the Zionists, kind regards, Mario. A bit of history, Hamas was created by Israel as an opposition to Yasser Arafat, and it's obvious that Israel allowed the November attack so that they could retaliate. Uh, it's not obvious to me. And Leveland took over Gaza. No, I think they'd rather just leave Gaza alone and just live in peace like they were for so many years. It's hard to believe because it's hard to believe governments, people can be so evil. There's video footage of Israeli army killing their own people. And that is not too hard to believe because we have seen how Israel has poisoned its own people with the jabs. Yeah, I think that's a stretch. But I'll keep my eyes and ears open and I will not close my mind. He has not acknowledged the massacre. South Africa's not doing well. No, South Africa's hardly a shining example of success. 
Hello, dear Rodney. It has to be said that it was and is the US who have supported and armed religious radicals. A good example is Afghanistan. They armed ISIS and then women lost their human rights. Afghanistan was a beautiful culture before the invasion. Women did study and girls went to school. Much love, Drew Maria. I hope RCR can get an interview with Amara Hass and Gabor Mati. Mate, the Gabor mate. Don't know who they are, I'm sorry. Every country has a right to protect their border, full stop. They supply power. Gaza has an airport. But who starts these wars? Why did they make all those tunnels? That's three different uh, texts. Rodney, this guy is full of S. He has clearly never been to Israel. Gaza has had full Israel. Gaza's had full autonomy, and the Israeli leadership forcibly removed their Israeli citizens. Israel is a democratic nation with Arab and Islamic members of the Knesset. Hamas did not drop pamphlets to warn the civilians on October the 7th to leave the area. The Israelis warned Gazan people before and gave them about a week to get out. That's true. I mean, the thing about most conflicts, oh, sorry, the thing about most conflicts is that you avoid civilian casualties and are very upset when you have them. And Israel has gone out of its way to avoid Israeli uh, Gazan civilians being hurt. And yet that attack on Israel on October the 7th specifically targeted civilians and they gloried in it, took pictures of themselves committing atrocities, and then paraded the dead and the wounded in the streets to the acclaim of people in the streets. It was shocking to me. Uh, tunnels under hospitals, weapons are hidden under hospitals, schools and mosques. There is evidence. There's no question Minto believes his own side of the story. However, it is one side and cherry-picked and emotive, of course. Extraordinary restraint, Rodney. Hats off, I would have been jumping in. Anyway, I'm pleased I heard this. Finally, there's been barbarism and propaganda and terrorism. Question everything. Hamas have been doing that worldwide. Rodney, I don't like the downplay of what happened in Israel. It was an unprovoked terrorist attack on innocent people. John cannot explain that one away. It hardly gets a mention now. And Hamas has, from what I hear, murdered 20 more hostages. If this is true, how do you deal with that atrocity? Glennis, how indeed. And how do you deal with a population that's been propagandized and indoctrinated into hate and killing? Hi, Rodney. Interesting conversation on Gaza, but John is very biased and unrealistic. There's no possibility of integration of the occupied Gaza state into Israel. The big question is why won't any of the neighboring Muslim states offering to take in the Palestinian people because these people won't integrate. They're extreme fanatics. Difficult problem. How do you deprogram the hate that would allow for a genuine integrated state? You're a generous interviewer, Rodney. Cheers, Brett. Well, thank you. And it is a problem. How do you? If you've if you've programmed little kids, oh my goodness. Hi, Rodney. Still loving what you do, so keep up the great work. I have a problem with the direction the RCR is going this week in regards to the Middle East crisis. We live a world away, and we have so many problems happening here with Marxist rule, media rule, and so many other huge things going on. I know that there are atrocities happening, and there needs to be diplomatic efforts made by many countries. For us, firstly, we need to focus on our own problems and get them rectified, and then come in from a position of reflection and strength, not go off half-cocked as we do and pick a side and scream at each other. 
let's get our own country heading in the right directions first before we weigh in to solve someone else's dramas. Again, we have more than enough of our own. Let's unite our people here first. Cheers, Mike. Mike, wonderful, wonderful words. Thank you. It's a great reminder. So easy to be pointing the finger elsewhere and not dealing with our problems. And I guess it almost absolves us from having to fix our problems if we don't talk about them. Love the John Minder interview, Rodders. You're so much more of an interviewer and good human being than Sean Plunkett. Yeah, it's not a very high bar. I'll be looking for your pro-Israel interview now. Thank you. It's under Ashley Church. Oh, I've just discovered you're chatting to Minto. That explains it. Hi, Rodney. I'm sorry, but John Mindo is speaking a whole heap of lies about both the history and the situation of what is happening in Israel and Gaza. He said so many things that are untrue that is hard to summarize it in an email. He's obviously a total Jew hater. However, I'm thankful for the interview that Paul had with Natasha Horstorf, Director of UK Lawyers for Israel, who spoke truth into the situation. Regards, Warren. Thank you, Warren. Whoa, you handled that really well, Rodney. I will stand totally with Israel. They have always been surrounded by enemies. The only reason Jordan and Egypt haven't joined in against Israel because they got beaten by Israel. But this is going to be biblical. Just wait and see. You need to get yourselves right with God. Hi, Rodney. Please watch this. It shows that John Minto is talking out of his bottom bit. Regards, Alan. And it's a telegram. I haven't looked at it yet. Allowing hate from people like Minda is akin to pedophiles explaining their love for children or Hitler explaining why he had to kill Jews and blacks. Why, oh, why are you supporting lies like Minto? Not supporting them, but I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting to have Adolf Hitler explain himself in his own words? I suppose he did in Mein Kampf, but to interview him? Would it be wrong to do so? It's tricky, isn't it? How do you handle this in a free society? My great hero, Sir Karl Popper, wrote a wonderful exposition about tolerance because that was his big thing uh, in politics and living in an open society. But he said there had to be a limit on tolerance because you tolerant people had to set a bar where they'd no longer tolerate intolerance. And you can see this now with the extremist in our society who want to shut down debate and shut everyone up and scream and yell. They're a minority. And we, the tolerant, tolerate it. But at some point you have to say no because you're not tolerating us. And you see it in the university. So you can only take tolerance so far because the intolerant will abuse it, which was Sir Karl Popper's point. Rodney's interview with John Linto was extraordinary, such a sensitive topic. I was fascinated to hear that much of what John shared was what I was taught in social studies, geography and history in the 70s and early 80s New Zealand. Yet Rodney managed to pose questions that gently unraveled the narrative. A credit to you, Rodney, especially not responding to the question of New Zealand colonialism. Complex indeed. Thank you for one of the best and most Kiwi-centric rational discussions I've heard on this to date. Oh, that is so kind. Thank you. That is brought a wee tear to my eye. I'm sorry, I only caught the end of your segment. Universities need to get back to teaching and not indoctrination. Didn't like them. 
Ah, that was, yeah. Well, Rodney, you've gone down the track of redeeming yourself by interviewing John Minto. <laughs> Thank you. I had decided I wouldn't listen to you anymore after hearing at least two pro-Israeli interviews without any balance, which surprised me, as you'd always impressed me with your fairness. Prior to this, driving home tonight, I hit the RCR app and heard you and John Minto. I found Minto's history of Palestine its people to be thorough and knowledgeable, and for many, including myself, informative. Your bias, however, will stand out as if you did not want to acknowledge the siege of the Palestinian people that they live under and the tense pressure cooker that they've lived in for so many years. I feel very sad you still don't seem to get the Rothschilds are behind the state of Israel, and there's so much more to the war than meets the eye. I think you'd be wise to look at that side of the conflict in your next interview with someone who can integrate the visible Middle Eastern war with the invisible NWO. I should disclose I'm a practicing Catholic, but have no time for the biblical interpretations I hear. Stating Israel belongs to the Jews, as the Old Testament tells us so. This is a very common chant I hear from many fundamentalist Christians. I do not believe you would hear Christ say this. It's a great point what Jesus would say, isn't it? That perfect man, you feel he would walk amongst us and just quell the hate, for example, but he was crucified. On the interview with John Minto, there was recently a Palestine, a Palestinian living in Israel that prosecuted a Jewish cabinet member. Palestinians can serve in the Knesset, and also traditional Palestine is what we know as Jordan. And then finally, someone caught up with the Ashley Church interview. I'm very impressed with your recent interview with Ashley Church. Fully support. Thank you very much. What a wonderful mailbag. And look, it is a divisive subject, and that's why we need to discuss it and do so politely and respectfully, which we do. And I do love the feedback because it's polite and respectful. What wonderful listeners we have, what wonderful community we are building, because it's all very easy to get along and we all agree. And it's when we disagree that we choose whether we're humane and a community and that we respect each other even when we disagree. Send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh my goodness, we're in for a treat. I think this is the first time that we've followed a sister with a brother because no one can forget the Lorraine Moller interview, which is one of my proudest moments, is to interview her and to have her open up to us about what it's like to run a championship marathon. And she took us there, I could feel it. And today we have her wonderful brother, Gary Moller. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Rodney. Um, it's a pleasure. You're quite a distinguished family, aren't you? Uh, we're just hardworking and we think a lot and we do a lot of study. You do. Um, and do you all get along? I love my brothers and sisters. I've 
absolutely love every single one of them and every brother and sister has in their own way been an amazing contribution to my life and they give me strength as well they support me and i support them yeah after all these years uh, we make a great team yeah how many brothers and sisters have you got i've got five brothers and sisters my goodness yeah. that's a big family yeah uh yeah yeah, over a good a good spread of ages. Um, usually pretty qu- pretty quick. Pop uh, mum tended to pop them out pretty quickly back yeah. in the days when contraception wasn't quite what it used to what it is nowadays. Yeah, yeah. How old are you, Gary? I'm seventy. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, Gary, I'm going to introduce you as you're a health person, but it's nutrition as medicine. You take a holistic approach you've had a background in sport physiology and nutrition a lot of training a lot of experience you yourself are a champion mountain bike world champion which is amazing and not just in your age group you can beat the younger fellas well um and yes so i'm the current uh, uh uci uh, Masters Mountain Bike Marathon World Champion. I'm the back-to-back uh, Olympic distance Masters Mountain Biking World Champion. I haven't been, uh, I've, so I'm still defending that, though COVID got in the way. And I'm currently ranked number two in the world in Masters Cyclocross. And in Cyclocross, I'm 10 years unbeaten uh in the cyclocross masters new zealand championships okay and when and you're I, ma- sorry and and i run pretty well i'm a, i'm a, not too bad as a runner yeah. when you are in the masters category what age do you hit masters in the sport you do um uh well it depends on the sport but from about 35 40 years of age and uh, like at the um uci Marathon Masters, I think I came seventh or eighth in the 55 years and upwards. My goodness. Um, so, uh, and and the, the reason why I'm doing able to do this, Rodney, it's got nothing to do with genetics or anything like that. I've just invested smartly, wisely in my health um, through doing the sort of testing that we're going to be talking about today, by the way. Mm. Um, I'll just... Um, start by saying um this this whole business of nutritional medicine the first thing you do it's like running a business is you have a set of accounts you do a stock take you know where your profit and losses you know where your excesses your shortages um, imbalances and your toxicities are within your business and with uh, modern technology we can do the same with our bodies we can peer uh, into our cells and look at the um, profit and loss of what's going on inside our cells. And once we know that, we can then come up with uh, remedies. Um, But without that, hey, nutritional therapies are essentially um, flying blind, stabs in the dark, and usually a waste of time and money. Um, So the first thing you do is you test, then you prescribe. 
So how do you test someone? Say I turn up at your shop and I say, look, I think I'm not feeling great. I think I could feel better. What's the first thing you do? Well, um, nowadays there's probably a thousand different tests that you can uh, uh, that that I've got my hands on. But uh, I have one test and one test alone that uh, is the best, and that is the hair tissue mineral analysis. So when you're choosing that test, you've got to choose the right laboratory, uh, the right protocols, and so on. And I've boiled it down to just a, a couple of um, labs that provide the right um, here in New the Zealand? right technology. No, no, no. You've got to send the samples off to the United States to um, uh, laboratories that have got the technology and are, are able to um, afford to put this sort of stuff in place for us. Yeah. And that is a mineral analysis. Yes. So, um, so of course, minerals are, uh, well, the, the elements of the universe are what we're made up. You and I, we're just stardust arranged in a very yes. special way, Rodney. Yes. And, um, and through modern mass spectrometry, when we take a tissue sample, uh, we can analyse it just like, say, um, the Mars rover, uh, uses the same technology to um, mm. look for life on Mars. Well, we can look for life inside your body. Mm. And presumably <laughs> no, you yes. take a hair sample because it's easy, but it could be any set of yes. cells. Yes, that's right. Um, so you but, pull a hair and you get the follicle and the cells attached. Well, no, we don't We don't pull your hair. Um, oh. What we do is we, we, we're, we're civilised. We cut it. And, and oh. what... So it's yeah, the so, hair itself, not the not the little yeah. follicle. Ah, yeah, yeah. So the so the hair cell is uh, is encased in a uh, waterproof and impervious keratin outer layer, mm-hmm. and so it provides a permanent record of what was um, inside that cell when it was growing inside your body. Ah. So. So we can we can even go right back. For example, Napoleon Bonaparte. We know from uh, analysing a lock of his hair that he was gradually poisoned over a long period of time by arsenic. So somebody who was feeding him arsenic in his um, in his meals. Okay, that's the. Assumption. It was it was it wouldn't have been a mistake. It would have been deliberate. You think? No, no, uh, no. Um, when it gets gets up to certain levels. Unless he's bathing in a central North Island hot pool here in New Zealand, uh, then it's got to be added. Um, back in those days, arsenic was the poison of choice by disaffected wives um, for knocking off the old man. Okay, mm. um, but nowadays you can test for it. By the way, I've got the I've got the test results here showing that Far Lap, the racehorse, was given a fatal dose of arsenic. Really, in the twenty-four hours around the time that um, that uh, it died, okay. My goodness, and that's because hair keeps growing after death. So, um, so the laboratory was able to take a little bit of um, a strand of uh, farlaps uh, hair, and prior to death, the arsenic levels were such, and then after death, the arsenic levels were different, and uh, there was a you can see it on the chart, a massive spike in arsenic. So that's the value of hair tissue testing. Now, here's the other thing. Um, uh, organ function 
can be determined to a degree by the mineral patterns. So, for example, if on a hair tissue analysis, we find calcium is elevated relative to the lie of the land, that can be an indication of poor thyroid function. Because when thyroid function is poor, you get parathyroid gland dominance. And when you have parathyroid gland dominance over the thyroid, then you get a shifting of calcium out of bones into soft tissues. And that will show on a hair analysis as elevated calcium. Mm. But I'll just add another yeah, I point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, for example, another example, if somebody has burned out their adrenals, um, the adrenals regulate blood pressure, amongst other things. And it does that by, um, among other things, regulating sodium and potassium in the body. If the adrenals are blown through, say, excessive stress, um, over-exercising, those sorts of things, um, or the presence of toxins like lead, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, is that we will see a depression of sodium and potassium on a hair tissue test. So, uh, so, so that's how. And then, of course, um, the the really important thing, Rodney, is we've got to relate what we see from the hair tissue analysis to the person. So if the person um, is has got a history of, say, stress and exhaustion and they've got low sodium potassium, if they're tired and they've got aching joints and they're getting arthritic and they've got brain fog and they've got low sodium potassium and high calcium, then that's a really good indication that their thyroid and adrenals are probably needing support. Mm. Okay, So what if- we can... What about gut health? Um, because we understand that having a healthy gut is important and yes. that modern foods and antibiotics can give us a dysbiosis. How do you pick up a healthy gut or an unhealthy gut? Do you do a poo analysis? Well, <clears throat> uh, we can do, but I seldom do. Mm. Um, when, when a person is ill, they're not only being stressed physically, but they are often also being stressed financially. So as a responsible health professional, I've got to be very careful that I don't add to the stress by layering test after test after test. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I draw on my skills, my 50 years of experience in health to question very carefully, get a good history, and then I order the most appropriate tests. Um, I don't do it the other way around. I'm just uh, throwing a whole lot of tests and hoping that something will pop up. Uh, you mm. know, It's like trawling. No, I need to be a lot more accurate and a lot more specific about um, ordering the testing. Otherwise, we just... It's so interesting. I taught myself to fix cars because it was something yeah. I'd always wanted to be able to do. Yeah. And I fixed up a couple of cars and then people's cars would give, whenever my cars gave trouble, mm. I got to the point where I knew exactly what it was. 
because hmm. you know I knew the car and I knew what yeah. it had it been through. If someone, because I'm not a mechanic, if someone bought me a car, oh, it's not going well. I wouldn't have a clue. And I found myself having to interrogate them quite deeply about, you know, what they'd be doing in the car, what they'd noticed, what were the what were the symptoms. And if hmm. you got a good account hmm. of what had happened with the car, you were 90% there in solving the problem. Yes. And you go into a modern shop for a car, and it's just diagnostic tests. And the diagnosis is amazing. It's a mechanical system in which we understand well, unlike a body. A mm. body is far more complex and mysterious compared to a car. But it was just interesting what you say, that the history of that car and what had happened in leading up to the problems, to me, were vital in diagnosing it. And you're saying it's the same for a human being. You have yes. to understand... If they're sedentary, if they're if they're mad, sporting and been over exercising, uh, they've had headaches or not had headaches. All of that adds up to your picture of what is going on. And Correct. then you say, don't just throw tests at them because every time you do a test, it's a few hundred dollars, or it could be a thousand dollars. Yes. What's a hair nothing. test cost? It varies between say one hundred and fifty and about. $200, $300. So that's quite an economical very, test, right? Oh, um, well, the, the really good thing is that um, for the experienced trained practitioner, it is a goldmine of information. Mm. It tells us so much. Now, you mentioned, for example, the gut, right? Eh? Now, I mentioned uh, low sodium and potassium. Well, guess what? Sodium and potassium have crucial roles in digestion. And if they are low or if they are excessive or in, uh, if there's too much sodium, not enough potassium, um, then straight away we're going to see digestive issues. Uh, for example, um, you need sodium, sodium chloride, in order to make hydrogen chloride, in other words, hydrochloric acid. If there is a lack of HCl, uh, sorry, NaCl, in other words, salt, sodium, then you can't make adequate amounts of hydrochloric acid, which means digested as, digestion is immediately compromised. So if somebody is lacking sodium, they're going to have poor digestion or very likely it'll be contributing to it. Um, hydrochloric acid does a number of things. It hydrolyzes um, minerals but it also helps to sterilize the food. Um, so if somebody's got poor stomach acid production, then they're likely to develop um, things like yeast or candida infections of the upper digestive tract mm. because it's not being sterilized by the hydrochloric acid. So you've got that. Other things, um, there wouldn't be a New Zealander that hasn't got an issue with zinc and uh, you need zinc for the production of hydrochloric acid. So there, you get all of these things. So Got when it. you're looking at a, at a head tissue test, um, and again, it's really important to be asking the, um, the patient what uh, you've got to get an idea of their signs and symptoms, and you put them together. Uh, presumably, you yeah. presumably you can do that over a Zoom call. 
Uh, we can, but of course, um, the ideal is to have the person sitting in front of you. But yeah. um, Zoom, Zoom is good. But um, you know, for certain in certain cases, you really want to have the person okay. sitting there in front of you. Presumably, you'd get the hair test. Yeah, you suggest a protocol, nutrition supplements. Yeah, then do you get them back? And do another hair test to see that it's improved, or yeah. does it take a long time for the hair to show the gain? Uh, yes. So what we do is, um, first of all, restoring health in human beings. We, we've got to think in human years rather than rat or mouse years. Um, it takes time. Uh, you know, uh, um, we we need to uh, think in terms of months and even years in restoring mm. health. Um, it, it, it's a very, very gradual process. There's no instant cures, even though people uh, are brought up these days to go Take for the, give me a shot lock. Yeah, you know, the magic bullet, um, you know, mm. sock it to me. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Um, the best way to um, improve a person's health through natural therapies, nutritional therapies, is to almost think of it like um, a gardener would. And yeah. you you hydroponically dribble the nutrients in in the right amounts. You don't just throw a month's worth bang, smack onto a plant or what have okay. you. You do I it talk, gently. Um, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's your talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Gary Moller. Well, this is amazing. Um, by the way, through the show, how do we get a hold of you, Gary? If someone's listening and saying, mm, I'd like to get tested, how do they get how do people find you? Well, they can just Google my name, uh, Gary Moller. And in fact, I've written thousands of articles. So um they can type, for example, Gary Moller chronic fatigue. Or uh, Google can do it for you. Just type Gary Moller. CFS and see what comes up. Okay. CFS for chronic fatigue syndrome or Gary Moller for, say, type in um, uh, glandular fever. Okay. Or um, fibromyalgia, um, thyroid, um, or adrenals, um, adrenal fatigue. Just use Gary Moller and do the search. Otherwise, go to garymoller.com. Um, but I have my main website, which has just been commissioned at this very minute, is precisionhealthtesting.com. All one word, precisionhealthtesting.com, which pretty much says what it's all about. Uh, tell me, should I get my hair tested when I'm feeling uh, yes. well, or should I wait till I'm feeling unwell? Well, yes, the ideal time to do a, a one of the counting system for your body, okay? So the ideal time to do it is when things are working well. And it will then give you a baseline then. And by the way, nobody's ever perfect. I tell you what, no matter, everybody, every, I've done thousands of these tests, Um I was for several years the practitioner educator, the support person for uh, one of the laboratories processing all of the testing here in New Zealand. I got to see every test that was done in New Zealand. It came across my desk 
And I worked with um, doctors, nutritionists, and other health professionals with um, helping them understand and interpret this particular type of test. Now, um, nobody is perfect. We've all got our imbalances, our deficiencies, and so on. So do the test, and then uh, you have that baseline, and then just follow whatever the guidelines are telling you. And then repeat the test after about six months. So you're giving time to provoke a little bit of change, um, some adjustments, and uh, for ex- I will get onto the lead thing sh- soon. Yes. But, um, uh, and then you repeat the test, and then do it about once a year or once every two or three years. Or if there's been a significant change in health, then wait about two or three months, then repeat the test. Because remember, it's a forensic test. It's looking yes. at what's happened after the event. Yes. Okay? It's like Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah. We picked it up after. Far lap, we picked it up after. Okay? I found your webpage, precisionhealthtesting.com. So thank you for that, because I've always gone to your blog spot and enjoyed your blog um, presentations. Gary, should children have a baseline test to work from for later in their life? Yes, every baby upon being born should have the test done. As soon as you can get a lock of hair, then Mm -hmm. a test should be done. And it will show uh, nutritionally uh, what parents need to do uh, to ensure that they have the healthiest of children. And... um, Children, as as you know, are especially vulnerable to toxins like lead, cadmium, arsenic, aluminium, and so on, which are uh, present in the uh, environment. And their tiny little uh, organs, liver, kidneys, and so on, uh, are not as good as yours and mine at clearing these toxins. So, uh, yes, repeat, uh, do the test in a child, um, particularly if there are... Um, health issues, learning disabilities, behavioural problems, and so on. Mm. Um, Does I'm a bit short on hair on my head. Would hair on my forearm do? Uh, Yes, it it will work. Um, You could always try and grow something there, Rodney. I'm sure it's (laughs) beautiful territory. Um, uh, Yeah, usually we'll go for pubic hair uh, afterwards. Yes. Um, Because? um, well, um, usually it's more abundant. <laughs> okay. So you need quite a, you're just one strand is not enough. No, one strand is definitely not enough. No, ah, okay. no, there's, it's, um, it's not the, um, it's the weight of hair or the amount of hair that's important for the laboratory to do a assay. Okay. Well, I'll post you some of my but, pubic hairs in the morning. Well, <laughs> uh, well, uh, what I'll do first, uh, Rodney, is that if you're going to do the test is we will send you the forms and the instructions on how to take it. Okay, good. Okay, uh, that's yeah, yeah. Funny. I just yeah. Don't just I, don't just send me uh, your pubic ran. hair in the mail. Okay, yeah. I, I don't oh, we've got to get off this topic now. No, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Lead. Yes, we had a talk on here, shocking, about mm. the prevalence of lead. Tell us yes. about lead. Uh, well, um, uh, where do I start? Well, first of all, um, 
we thought that taking lead out of paint and lead out of petrol uh, basically solved the problem. It certainly hasn't. Uh, I think uh, lead as an as a health issue is as common as it ever was, and it may in fact be more of a problem these days, partly because um, there is a there are nutritional deficiencies that make a person more vulnerable to lead. Now, I'll I'll start by saying, uh, just going back a little bit, Rodney, everything in the universe is yin-yang, black, white, hot, cold, positive, negative, male, female, um, right down to the subatomic level, okay? If there's light, there must be dark. If there is matter, then there must be antimatter, even if we haven't found it. Um, everything in the universe works as balancing. Even politics, you have uh, you have your conservatives and then you have your liberals. If you have too much conservative, not enough liberal, or vice versa, you end up with a dictatorship, okay? And so on. Everything in the universe is in a balance. So when we're looking at um, the nutrients and toxins in the human body, um, everything balances. So lead has its antagonists and synergists, things that um, uh, help to push lead out of the body. And if that is deficient, and I'm thinking of things like selenium and zinc, for example, and magnesium, if they are lacking in the, in the diet, in the body, and somebody is exposed to lead, then you have less protection against the, uh, the lead uh, coming into your body and staying in your body and oh getting, my up goodness. To that, getting up oh to my no goodness. good. Yeah. yeah, so you tend to think of it as being an external thing, and it is, but also your internal uh, health as an ability to deal with the lead is yes, exactly. the, a big part of the picture. Yes. Um, so, um, look, we are, they're, they're adding chemicals, like I think about a thousand new chemicals every year to the environment that our bodies never, you know, a hundred years ago, we were never exposed to any of these things. And um, and also we've bought things like lead and arsenic and cadmium and so on, which are, have been sequestered and deep in the earth and the, the rock and so on. And we've extracted them and put them into the biosphere. Um, it's in, they're in the food chain. Mercury, um, it's a huge problem. Mercury, oh my God. If you think lead's a problem, let's talk of time, okay? Um, and over the 20 years or so that I've been doing the testing, I'm watching mercury go up, not down. Okay, we've got rid of amalgams, but the mercury's going up. And that's because the mercury is in the marine food chain. So when you eat fish, you are inevitably getting a dose of mercury, and it shows on a hair tissue mineral analysis. Now, if somebody is lacking zinc, for example, and there's virtually no zinc in processed food, then one of the key protectors against lead, cadmium, mercury, for a start, and arsenic, is zinc. And if zinc is lacking, then we don't have any protection or our protection against those toxic metals is uh, very poor. And, and um, you pick up with your hair tissue analysis, hmm. you pick up, say, lead and mercury yes. and arsenic, and you can also pick up the zinc. And yes. so it's a huge diagnostic tool. Yes. 
And and uh, so if we think of a child, um, zinc, let, let's just talk about zinc, but look, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, than no, I get that. Yeah, sorry. At, yeah, all the minerals work together uh, uh, like the most incredible orchestra. And and by the way, think of um, lead and cadmium, and that is sort of like well, um, I'm mixing metaphors, but jokers in the pack. Okay, yes. they come in from from uh, they come in from the side and they destroy everything. They yes. interfere. They they affect the way that that orchestra works. Um, now, um, but let's just think about zinc. Now, zinc is critical for growth. It's critical for child development. It's critical for the development of the brain. Um, uh, zinc deficiency is associated with um, ADHD, autistic behaviours, um, uh, because of its role in um, in, uh, in neurological development. It's essential for growth, for just being tall. It's essential for the production of um, particularly the male hormones. It's essential for the development of the sex organs in women for the maturing of ovaries and for young uh, for men to be well developed downstairs. Okay. By the way, farmers know these things better than uh, perhaps most nutritionists, right? Mm-hmm. Because they they understand or about this kind of the relationship between soil minerals and the health of their animals, including reproduction, uh, fertility, etc. So um, if there is a, a so zinc is required for growth and all these things that um, a young child is. Um, uh, trying to do from birth or before birth even, and um, if there isn't adequate amounts of zinc, there's going to be problems. Um, now, think of the modern diet. Noodles, rice, chicken, righto? Um, uh, what was... Now, you're into gardening, Rodney, righto? Mm-hmm. Um, you'll know that if you're a farmer... Uh, sorry, if you're, a, if you're a gardener, the most important things is you put lime... Uh, Nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, okay, NPK, righto? And and that makes your plants grow like crazy, righto? But um, you are what you eat. So when you are feeding your family, if you're growing, uh, sorry, if you are feeding them food that was grown primarily with NPK and a little bit of lime thrown on, but what about all the other trace minerals mm-hmm. um, being absent? What do you think your children are getting? Mm. Okay, and they're not and, getting much at all. And it's you raised an interesting point. Presumably, if I'm a farmer with sheep and cattle, yeah, I'm testing my soil for trace minerals, yes, as well as NPK. Mm. But if I'm a market gardener, I'm not worried about trace minerals. I'm just wanting a nice looking lettuce. Exactly. And uh, traditionally, what we did was we. Uh, we composted, uh, yes. we we collected seaweed, and yes. so on, um, and and crops. We rested the land, and yes. so on. Whereas now, with modern agriculture, we can just grow the same thing year after year after year, righto? And if there's a problem with weeds and that sort of thing, you just um, you just bomb it all with Roundup and so on. So um, the soil but, is not the way it used to be. Now, let's imagine this, mm. uh, taking lead. Presumably, 
if I have a worry that my kids have been exposed to lead because I've been in an old house and mm. et cetera, et cetera, and there were lead light windows and whatever. But what you're saying is you should get a hair test analysis, even if that's not so, because yes. you might be surprised what's picked up. Yes. Have you ever had a someone come through your system or a child come through your system and you look at the hair and you think, oh, perfect? Never. Never. Um, there's always, uh, Rodney, we can all, all of us, we can always do better. But certainly wow. what, what really does disturb me when I test children in particular is how nutrient depleted children are today. Now, uh, the way of thinking of it, look, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, chicken, rice, um, wheat, those sorts of um, foods that are pretty much staple today. Um, think about the nutrient content of those. Beyond the protein and the carbs, there's not much else to really go on about. They are nutrient depleted. So think of it as like, again, being a keen gardener, Rodney, um, would you try to grow your vegetables and that in sandy soil, in soil which was just sand, okay, you desert soil? Okay, to ask a question is to answer it, isn't it? I know, and and yeah, and yeah, they'll grow, but they'll be weak and spindly and watery, and they will have no resistance to every disease and parasite that uh, lands on them. Okay, and think of what you're doing with your children. Why is it that since the 1960s, the health of our children has declined? Right, hey? New Zealand used to be God's own. After, after World War II, they invested in the basics of health, and by the 1960s, we were amongst the healthiest people in the world. Now, that's, think of, um, well, Rodney, look, um, you, you, we start off talking about my brothers and sisters. We are products of the investment in child health, the basics of nutrition. Think of like we had the the school milk program. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've got my, um, my Plunkett. Yes, um, indeed. I, I've got it here, and um, and the Plunkett nurse at a year and a half, when I was a year and a half, she recommended, I've got it, it's in writing, um, brains, um, liver, uh, diced brains, liver, kidney, and tripe um, with flaked fish and ground beef, okay? That's what my mother was told by the Plunkett nurse to feed me because I was missing my growth um, projections. Okay, that is amazing. amazing. That is amazing. Because when did I you got... last? Yeah, when did you last feed those to your children, yeah. Rodney? Yeah, I got my Plunkett book out some years ago <laughs> when yeah. I got interested in nutrition, and it had brains and liver in it as standard. Yeah, feed, feed that baby brains and liver. Look. If they put that in a Plunkett book now, mothers would report them to the authorities. Yeah. Well, Rodney, when I when I when I'm looking at you, what yeah. I see is a as a very strong boned individual and no doubt strong willed as well. Okay. 
and you're you're the product of um, your that nutrition blanket. and your upbringing, mm. and and it starts. You are what you eat. Mm-hmm. And no, no, there, there's, I, I, there's some simple principles. If you want to build muscle, you eat steak and you work mm-hmm. out. Okay. Um, if you want strong bones, well, you have bone broths mm. and so mm. on. If you want beautiful hair, skin, and nails, you have collagen and so on. Uh, you are what you eat. And I guess, um, hey, if you want if you want good brains, you eat brains, <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, tell me. You've got, yes. Keep sorry. going. Tell me I'm interrupting you rudely. I apologize, but uh, it, it's so interesting. So the response to the hair test mm. is a tweaking of the diet. Yes. So the first thing that we do, uh, the reason, oh, um, so of all the testing, my usual, well, I had it, I mentioned that there's just this amazing proliferation of tests provided by all kinds of laboratories. Now, the the real challenge for a health professional is to decide what are the best tests. Uh, we can't. Um, yeah, um, we we can be an expert in everything, but a master of none. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and my dis- I had to make the decision of all the tests that are available. I can't be an expert in the whole damn lot, or at least I can't master them. Um, so I had to choose the ones that best suit the work that I do. And the hair tissue mineral analysis is like a a good old tool that's been around long enough. I've done so many of them. I've done so many courses that I know it back to front. I don't even have to look at the figures. I just need to eyeball the charts and I can figure them out right away. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas if I go and try and do this test and that test and that so on and so on, um, I'll not only confuse myself, but I'll confuse my patients, and I'll probably give them bad advice. Um, so I think of the hair tissue testing as my good old reliable basic accounting system that I've used for years, and I know every little, um, uh, every I know all the nooks and crannies, and um, and the and also where you can get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I know it. Okay. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Um, yeah. And presumably, when you see the patients or the customers mm-hmm. come to see you, your clients, you might even look at them and have a fair idea. And knowing what you know about New Zealand yeah. and its diet, you might have a fair idea what you're going to find because there'd be patterns, right? A, a very wise um, and probably one of the best orthopedic surgeons in New Zealand ran a workshop for uh, me and my employees um, many years ago, and he 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 cautioned us about you don't just uh, if somebody comes in with this complaint or that complaint, you don't just order a whole lot of tests. What you do is you look and you listen, you ask the right questions, and you create a history. You listen. Was there a popping or a tearing? Did it give way suddenly? Did it swell immediately or over 24 hours? You ask those sorts of questions and you look at it and you palpate, you touch. um, And then you order the most appropriate test to confirm what you suspect is going on or 
it will provide a differential scenario or diagnosis. You don't just throw tests at people. What Mm. you do is you do exactly what um, you're you're talking about, Rodney. You look and you listen, and Mm. you get, and the person will tell you. You will learn. So um, then you let's let's say Mm. you test someone. Mm-hmm. And it comes back typically short on zinc. Yeah. What would you then suggest? Well, it's not quite so straightforward because we then have to ask uh, why th- there is a shortage of zinc. Um, I will have asked the person uh, to give me an indication of what they're eating and also supplementation and so on. Um, so we need to have a picture of of that person. Um, we will also look for, because very often on a hair tissue test, you'll see elevated zinc. And you have to ask the question, is that because that person's got too much zinc or too little? Is Are they losing zinc? Is it bleeding out of yes. their body yes. in response to, say, inflammation, um, perhaps a, a viral yeast or fungal infection? Uh, because zinc is um, an ant- zinc. Zinc is used by your immune system to fight yeast, viral, and fungal infections, Mm. okay? Um, Which in part explains why conditions like glandular fever tends to um, be more prevalent in teenagers when they're going through the growth spurt because of the need for zinc for growth and for hormone production, okay? Mm. So if if there's a catastrophic or a a dire lacking of zinc, then that person during that spurt, becomes a sitting duck for yeast, viral, and fungal infections, uh, just uh, as a little aside. So um, uh, we also need to be aware of whether there is the presence of, say, mercury, cadmium, lead, because they block zinc. And so if there is the presence of that, we won't just give zinc. Um, And uh, we will... I see. I see. I apologise. You've got to look at the diagnosis as a whole or the testing as a whole. Okay. Because just the absence of zinc isn't go away and eat broccoli and take some supplements. It's to know why, because they could be having plenty of zinc in their diet, but there's a problem of um, lead. But your test as a whole will pick that up. Yes, correct. And, and I just um, pulled out one little item of the test, which yeah. isn't the diagnosis. Yeah. So, um, just uh, uh, you've you've just uh, reminded me of some another point that we must make, and uh, this was first pointed out by a bloke named Hippocrates um, mm. just a few thousand years ago, and and that is that you treat the person, not the condition. Mm. Right. So you've got to look at the whole person and not just the one thing. So if somebody's got fibromyalgia, um, you 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 and you go and chase that, and then they come up with high blood pressure, then you go and treat that, and then they're getting brain fog and they're depressed. So you treat that. Mm. Um, next thing you know, they're suffering from polypharmacy. In other words, they're being overmedicated. Whereas instead. What we should be doing is looking at the whole person and uh, and and going right down and looking at how their cells are working, what's their energy systems like, and so on, 
uh, there are toxins that are like lead that are blocking it and um, and solve those. And then the fibromyalgia might just disappear. The brain fog might clear and so on. The blood pressure might normalize. Um, uh, it's body heal thyself, um, to quote Hippocrates again. Okay. It's amazing how interrelated and complicated these things are. Some years back I had a um, yeah. my appendix out, mm. and a couple of years later I started to become forgetful. I had a sore gut. I became extremely disoriented. Mm. And... Um, Four or five years on, I was disguising from my family my inability to think and to recall and to mm. remember. Mm. I got to the point where I couldn't read a news article, and by the time I got to the bottom, I'd forgotten what the start was about. I found myself in the car driving places, forgetting where I was, why I was going anywhere, hmm. and forgetting sometimes how to find my way home. I was so alarmed, I thought I've got early onset dementia. And separately to that, I had a sore gut. Well, hmm. long story short, it turned out that when my appendix wound healed, a bit of my gut got caught in the wound and I had a hernia, it wasn't mm. protruding, but it was caught and inflaming my gut. I went and got the operation, bloody medical system, I had to pay for myself, it annoyed mm. me immensely. I got it repaired, I literally woke up from the surgery clear-headed. Oh my goodness. It was like I literally thought I was had it from that mm. one thing. Mm. I don't know how I got onto this, but like well the it's gut. A, yeah. It's a well, it's a very good story. Um, a very good um case. And uh, I'd be absolutely fascinated to um uh, do a little testing on you at some stage, uh, by the way, yeah. Rodney. Well, um, I might now, do that. Well, so if you've got, um, say, a low-grade infection going on in your gut, uh, for a start, you're going to be 24-7 uh, uh, putting toxins into your system. And uh, so that in a, that immediately is going to affect the way your brain works. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's it, just it a no-brainer. It was uh, astonishing to me. And then yeah. from that operation over the next few weeks, I was back to normal. And I was so angry how I'd suffered mm. literally for years. And um, so I guess, and what you're saying is there could be an enduring issue with that. Well, um, we can always do better. Mm -hmm. And as we get older, we tend to move towards a state of metabolic chaos. It's called aging. Yeah. And oh, I know ultimately, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, um, we, we, we reach a point of chaos where we get systems failure. 
and and that means the onset of chronic disease, age-related diseases, and ultimately uh, that's going to happen to all of us. Uh, it's well, inevitable. But uh, but you can fix it, or you can ameliorate. Well, it. You, well, well, you can't really fix it now. Uh, so uh, if I if I take myself, I've been working on a philosophy of staying twenty years ahead of disease. So. Look, I've got a family history of certain things that afflicted my mother and my father and my grandparents and so on. Uh, I know what they died from, and it's sort of like, oh, better be careful of those. But um, uh, I don't worry about any of those things, Rodney. What I do is I do my accounting, and I look for where my strengths and weaknesses are, where the toxins might be, and then I respond and I've been doing that now for about 20 years. And the results um, have been absolutely amazing. Like, it's the reason why, um, despite the history of family history of heart disease, um, I think I can claim to have the strongest, healthiest heart in the world of a 70-year-old because nobody can beat me. Okay? No. Yeah. I've got the and proof. You look, a bit, uh, listeners can't see you, but you look extremely youthful and energetic you're a great ad you know how you often get doctors and they look like frights <laughs> and you're thinking mm, not mm. so sure but you're a great testimony to this i'm talking uh, you're on rally check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde i'm talking to gary moller uh about your health doing a stock take of your health by getting your hair tested as a good test and one that Gary's mm. experienced with, and then how you can learn from that where problems might lie down the road, which is an astonishing uh, thought just from uh, a simple thing like hair testing. You can find Gary Moller through his blog, GaryMoller.com, or as I've just done, Precision Health Testing, all one word, PrecisionHealthTesting.com. And you would you pick up deficiencies, you pick up uh, tox toxins in the body, and from that you can diagnose potential reasons. It's not a matter of just saying, "Oh, you're a bit short of zinc, pop a pill." It's, "Oh, why are you short of zinc?" Um, and the hair testing itself provides such an insight to a skilled diagnetician hmm. that you can start positing it what are some can you tell us some of your great stories of clients that have come to you and experienced a turnaround well first of all i don't diagnose uh, i oh, better sorry. just uh, emphasize that um I there's, apologize. There's no, yeah so so what we do is um uh we we simply are guided by the by the testing, but we don't diagnose disease or okay. um, or what have you. But we can, what we can do, is we can identify the root cause drivers of much of the ill health that besets us. Um, and just uh, I'll, I'll 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 answer your question in a moment. I'll just emphasise that. Um, most of the decrements that we associate with aging are in fact controllable. Okay, so so um, disease is not inevitable. Um, we have got something called genes, 
It's your God script. Your genetic code is your God script. You are genetically programmed to move towards a state of perfect health and to stay in that condition until around about, say, 110 years of age. Mm -hmm. If disease begins to set in earlier um, or if you die sooner, uh, then you have let your genetics down. Okay. Um, now, that's a concept that I really want to emphasize. Uh, your genes are your God script. They are there to faithfully serve you for at least 110 years. If you don't live that long, or if you go down with disease sooner, then you've been letting the side down. And that's a, that's a really good concept. Um, most of um, uh, our, our aging-related diseases are controllable and preventable. But the main problem is, Rodney, first of all, we don't do the right testing and we leave it too late. Um, you if you wait until your doctor says, Houston, we've got a problem, it's too late. We need to be 20 years ahead. We need to look for the slightest hint of disease setting in. Okay, you don't wait until a cartilage is worn down to the bone. You act on it when there is still a lot of healthy cartilage there. Okay, you don't wait until your blood pressure is through the roof and um, and you've got real problems. No, you look for the slightest hints that something might be going wrong, and then you go in and you correct those lifestyle nutritional. Um, uh, imbalances, the toxins, and so on. Yeah, mm. so so that's a very very important. Now, um, I'm going to be publishing an article very shortly. I've I've got permission from uh, from the the person involved. Um, it's very this is a very common issue that we're seeing nowadays, and that is heart issues. There's been an explosion of heart issues over the last three years. Surprise. We know why, mm -hmm. okay? Now, um, and so it's almost once, twice, three times a week, somebody will approach me with heart issues like um, uh, the like pericarditis, myocarditis, um, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In other words, the heart getting weak and swollen and floppy, you know, these sorts of things. Um, and um, and again, we have to be asking the what are the root causes um, causing, say, the inflammation, um, the weakness, the, um, the 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 flaccidity of the muscle, the heart muscle, or the arteries, or whatever. And we can do that by doing this kind of testing, um, figure it out, and then we do the appropriate um, interventions nutritionally, um, usually. Uh, working uh, in combination with the medication the person may be on. Um, now, I'm going to be publishing an article showing somebody with um, apparently irreversible, untreatable, progressive um, heart failure and pericarditis, uh, who, as of now, has got um, normal heart function. Right? And it's just by body heal thyself identifying wow. these where the imbalances are you see 
like I said, you know, um, you're genetically, all of us, our genes are programmed to move us into a state of perfect health. That's what they're there for. And if that is not happening, it's because we've done something. We've poisoned the body. Um, there's deficiencies. You see, you can't build st a strong, healthy heart out of thin air. You've got mm. to provide the nutrients. And you've got to figure out what nutrients are deficient, or maybe there's too much. Another principle in nutrition is the Goldilocks zone. Not too much, not too little, just right. Just because, well, we mentioned zinc. Just because zinc is good for you, it doesn't mean giving a whole lot more zinc is going to make you even better. Mm. Okay? Mm. It's the mistake like athletes do. Creatine's great for athletes. So, hey, uh, these young blokes, they'll pile in it by the bucketful or the protein by the bucketful. It doesn't mean that a whole lot more is going to make them a whole lot better. It's all about Goldilocks zones. And again, a good gardener knows that. You've got to get those balances dead right. Not too much lime, not too much nitrogen, just right. Okay? Makes good I sense. I'd known I wish I'd known about that when I planted my pernatos because it turns out I think I over-nutritioned them. Um, <laughs> oh, Gary, you are hmm. wonderful. I met you for the first time at the parliamentary protest. Yes. And it was wonderful to see you there and wonderful to be introduced to your network that you had developed um, at that protest. And it's been wonderful to get to know you over the time since. I have to say, learning about what you do has been amazing to me. I had no idea, you know. And I had an idea that, yes, my diet could be tweaked and my diet could be improved uh, always because we're lazy. And we tend to want to bury our head in the sand when it comes to our health. But it's a wake-up call to talk to you and to say the simple thing of taking a stock take. Hmm. Because the thought of living another 40 years is a lot more attractive than living another 10. And that's so long as it's in good health. Oh, yes. So long as it's in good health, Rodney. Yes. Well, I have been talking to Gary Moller. I think it's amazing. I have had experience with a family member of the hair testing, and it was amazing, not through Gary, but with another practitioner, and it was amazing. And over months, the turnaround dramatic. This was a case of chronic fatigue, Gary, hmm. and a perfectly healthy person. And the hair testing came back, like, bleached out. Up the diet, in particular, the gut health, no looking back. And um, had been to doctor after doctor after doctor. Couldn't explain that chronic fatigue. Mm. So I am, if you like, have experienced that at a family level. And so I know of what you speak. And I had never occurred to me that I should be doing the same because I sort of feel okay. But you've reminded me that this might be a good thing to do. Gary Moller, you can find him at garymoller.com. You can find him at one word precision health testing.com. Uh, 
all-round good guy, all-round lives what he preaches, the healthy, fit lifestyle. Oh, my goodness, he's an inspiration. It's wonderful to have you on. Thank you for your time, Gary. Um, I will be in touch. You're on radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. Aren't we blessed with all the great people that live in New Zealand that we can interview and learn from? Mm. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. I recall reading uh, some time ago that Elvis Presley was asked once who people should vote for. And he replied somewhat confused and said, I'm just a singer. You know, I I don't know anything about politics. (laughs) Don't you just love that answer? I'm just a singer. I don't know anything about politics. I suspect he knew as much about politics as any one of us. But it was a smart answer because he didn't upset half his audience. But also, he knew that each of us can have our opinion on politics and have our vote. We don't need to be told what to think and how to vote by people who are singers or entertainers or actors or famous celebrities. And yet that's what we get endlessly and endlessly. I've got an example for you. Here's uh, this week. Here's the stuff. Well, do I call it a news organization? Purports to be a news organization. And the headline is, quote, Neil Finn joins the call urging the government to walk away from new oil and gas. Hang on. We just had an election. Three parties campaigned on reversing that, as I understand it. They got voted in. Shouldn't that be the policy? Nope. Musician Neil Finn, I'm reading from the article now, is calling on the new government to stay one step ahead of the climate crisis by maintaining the ban on at-sea oil and gas. What is the at-sea oil and gas sort of the worst stuff, is it, compared to on land? I don't know. Finn, best known as Crowded House's singer-songwriter, was one of more than 350 business leaders, academics, and environmentalists to sign an open letter to new Prime Minister Christopher Luxon protesting his plan to revoke the 2018 ban. Des Mills Executive Director Philip Mills, anthropologist Dame Ann Salmon, and New Zealand Geographic Director James Frankham also signed the letter along with healthcare workers, scientists, and concerned citizens. Signatories said the country did not need extra fossil gas, while a reversal could jeopardise 
exports, and climate commitments. The open letter said the U-turn would have serious consequences for the environment, plus the country's reputation and trade agreements. Energy exports were warned no new fossil fuels are required if the world is serious about limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Currently discovered reserves will more than cover energy requirements as economies transition to clean fuels. Oh, but listen to this. In the 2023 election campaign, Act, National and New Zealand First, all campaigned against the offshore ban. And the repeal is enshrined in the coalition agreement between Act and National. So here you have it. Three political parties campaigned to reverse the ban and 350 people say, no, 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 don't worry about the election. Don't worry about the manifesto. Reverse it. Well, I'm picking those 350 people didn't vote ACT, didn't vote National, didn't vote New Zealand First. They would have voted the Maori Party, the Labour or the Greens. Well, we had the election, they lost. But now they're saying, just walk away. That's actually asking these parties, just entering into government, to break their promises, to break their agreements that they have with each other. Oh my goodness, who do they think they are? To break the commitment to the people that voted for them. They're anti-democratic, clearly. Now here's the thing. What does Neil Finn know about our energy needs? Seriously? What does Philip Mills know? Seriously? Or Dame Anne Salmon? They know nothing more than I do or you do. There's nothing in their background that suggests they're experts on this. But nonetheless, they tout themselves up and say, no, no, forget your promise to the people of New Zealand. This would be bad. We don't need it. How do they think we're going to live in a world without fossil fuels? Won't bother them the price of fuel, though, will it? They're not going to be sitting at home as elderly people trying to limit the use of a one-bar electric heater to keep warm, try and pay the bills on their pension, it's not going to trouble them. But the very, very policies that they espouse make it harder for our elderly who don't have the wherewithal to pay high energy bills to survive, poor families who struggle to pay their bills each month, they have no care for them. They forget, too, how our crazy emissions policy works because we have what's called a cap-and-trade scheme, an emissions trading scheme, where we cap, supposedly, the amount of emissions that we can admit. So the government controls it. doesn't matter how much fossil fuels we extract, because we have a cap and trade, there's a limit to what gets burnt if the policy works. I think the cap and trade thing is mad. 
I think trying to limit CO2 emissions is mad. I think it's insane. There's absolutely not one shred of evidence, not one shred of evidence that methane and carbon dioxide is causing catastrophic warming for the planet. None. The entire scare is in, wait for it, models. And I use the word models because not one model, there's multiple models. And then they average them. How dumb is that? How stupid is that? There's absolutely not one shred of evidence that anything bad will happen if the temperature warmed on average by 1.5 degrees. As best we can tell, it's warmed by one degree over the last hundred years. If things got worse or better, better, much better. 1.5 degrees is a nothing. What do they think happens between winter and summer? This is crazy stuff. But here's the funny thing. Imagine if you're Philip Mills or Dame and Salmon or New Zealand Geographic Director James Rankham and you sign this letter and you don't get in the headline. Only Neil Finn does because he's the more famous one. He's the more what? <laughs> Important one. <laughs> Signing this anti-democratic letter to stop looking for gas and oil. Or how would you feel if you're a clever scientist? Or No, that would be a contradiction in terms. If you're employed as a scientist, a healthcare worker, or a concerned citizen, and you didn't even get your name in the article. Yep. Neil Finn is a big celebrity in this little call for action for the government not to deliver on its promise, to break its promise to the people of New Zealand, to the overwhelming majority that voted for them to go back on it, not to look for energy and gas that can make this New Zealand better off. And they want our elderly and our poor and all the rest of us to pay more for our power. And they can afford it. Many of us can't. They really disgust me, actually. Why don't they just go and live their low-carbon lifestyle and show us how it's done? Live without fossil fuels. Live without the products of industry and modern life. Because I guarantee you, each of them would burn more fossil fuels in their lifestyle in a week than I would in over a month with my family of five. Guaranteed. Hypocrites, give me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, we've got a special Politics Explained with Tane Webster today. We've had a lot of questions, a lot of queries about the Super City, Rodney Hyde's role in it, what a terrible person, what a terrible idea. And so Tane Webster, 
is along to put the questions to me. Tane, over to you. Yeah, you sort of said a bit of what I was going to say, but basically, what's the what's the truth about the super city? Was this was this a grand, great idea of yours? Are you still happy with how it's turned out? Yes, I'm not. It's it's got to disentangle two things. Local government is a total mess. No doubt about it. It is a total mess. Yeah. And um, but one council for Auckland region is a fantastically good idea, which I'll explain. But every decision that gets made subsequent is not the fault, if you like, of having what has been dubbed a super city. I never used that phrase myself. I just called it amalgamation. And um, But it gets blamed, and the councillors themselves like to blame it on the fact that there's a super city when they're actually making the decisions. And that's a difficulty. But I can whirble on about it if you'd like, Tane. Yeah, yeah, tell us tell us more. I mean, well, look, the, the first thing that I think a lot of people on our side would say, just to put this in there, is that isn't decentralisation better? That's, that's yes. I think, what's on the mind of a lot of people. Yes, yes, of course, and I'm very much of that view too. I'd like to decentralise as much as possible down to the individual and where you can't do things individually, you need a community decision. It should be done at the level of the community and so on and so forth. I thoroughly agree with that. First of all, what's wrong with local government? Well, we haven't actually sat down and decided why we have it, which seems remarkable in of itself, but it's something that's just grown and grown like topsy, and it's a total, total mess. I actually think we should just do away with local government because it's so under the thumb of central government that it actually can't do anything. You, 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 you have parliament makes the rules for local government, funds local governments for roads and so on and so forth, tells it how it's got to even make decisions. And then um, you get elected as a councillor or a mayor and you literally have no power or no say because you're on these railway tracks that have been put in place by central government. And central government literally washes its hands of the problems that you have. It's even weirder than that. Local government becomes an instrument of central government, say, for um, climate change or for achieving some environmental objective or for achieving some quality standard or safety standard. They put the obligation on local government and then wash their hands of it. And so local government is running around having to comply and take the heat. There's no proper... I don't, I don't know why we have local government. I could understand it a hundred years ago when communications were different. Now I don't know. And, of course, the other problem that we have is we think of local government as doing the basics, like, you know, the roading, the rubbish, the water, the sewage. But, of course, it's become like a little government where they're doing climate change, you know, affirmative action, uh, treaty there should be nothing to do with local government. And so um, I find it a terrible mess. The next issue that you have with local government is that you have a mayor elected and you think the mayor that he or she actually has some sway. They have virtually none because they're just one vote around the council table. And so you'll have 12 or 13 councillors 
And you've actually, the mayor's got to convince them to support a program, and they may not. And yet the mayor is actually getting hammered because no one knows who the councillors are. You don't have that party structure that you have, and out in the open at least, uh, like in central government where you vote the prime minister in with, with two or three parties, and there's an accountability there. You vote a mayor, and what can they do? They've got a, It's the council that decides everything, not the mayor. Crazy, right? Um, and they can't have any particular sway other than their one vote around the table. So the whole thing is dysfunctional. Here's another shocking thing. Um, when I was reforming Auckland, I'm, I forget the number. I got in my mind 112 or 182, but it was somewhere in that number. That was the number of things that local government had to do by law. A hunt, that's a smaller number. 112 things that it had to take responsibility for by law. So that's before you get out of bed. Here's 112 things we have to do today, fellas, because central government has told us we have to do this. So uh, local government is is broken. Um, there had been a long dissension in Auckland, um, in 1989, there was a big amalgamation. Essentially, as urban areas grew in New Zealand, small villages and towns would be gobbled up by the city nearby, and you'd be left with all these little borough councils. And so there'd be a borough council for, I don't know, Parnell, or there'd be a borough council for Mount Albert. And so um, that started to get reformed. Michael Bassett did that in 1989, where right through New Zealand, there was this big local government overhaul, and they got rid of the little borough councils. But when they got to Auckland, it all got a bit too hard. And Auckland was left with eight councils and eight mayors. Can you believe it? Plus a regional council with a chairperson. There were nine water bodies responsible for delivering water to Auckland. Nine. Now, when you say we decentralise, we decentralise as far as we possibly can, but the governing body really has to reach across their geographic region for the decision to be made. So when you're thinking of supplying water or getting rid of sewage, you've got to look at Auckland as a whole. You can't do that as a street. Yeah, I agree. You can't apply the decentralisation thinking equally to every single facet of society. It's no, you've got, to, you've got to look at the chief decisions. You've got to look at the key decisions. And you've got to say, okay, if we have this decision, because it's a collective decision, we may have to make this at the level of the street. We may have to do this at the level of the neighbourhood. We may have to do this at the level of the town. We may have to do this at the level of the city. We may have to do this at the level of the region. We may have to do this at the level of the country. So, But when you look at infrastructure, the trouble with the infrastructure in Auckland was you couldn't carve it up in eight or nine ways. Right? Crazy, right? It couldn't be done. And it was totally failing in terms of infrastructure. Uh, you won't recall this, but what prompted the argument for amalgamation was um, Helen Clark decided to build for Auckland a rugby stadium. 
and they would pay for it. Auckland was going to get it for free from the tax powers of New Zealand. The eight mayors and the chair of the regional council couldn't agree on it, and it was lost. It didn't happen. And this became every single decision that confronted Auckland. And the mayors discovered that they could get re-elected. To get re-elected, they had to be in the paper. The easiest way to get into the paper was to be having an argument with another mayor. Disagree. Disagree. And so there was this performative disagreement amongst the different councils. Helen Clark got so upset by this that she organised a, a royal commission to look into how we could set a better structure up for Auckland. And that was underway before I became a minister. Meanwhile, it seemed obvious to me that when it became to roading, sewage, water, we should have one council for Auckland. And so I put a flyer out right through my electorate, and I stood in, in, in the election in 2008 or 2000, I think 2005 or 2008 on actually having one council for Auckland. So it was my campaign, one of my campaign promises. Um, for the reasons that are obvious. It got so crazy, this was in the Royal Commission report, that there was a sewage plant built on the North Shore that was nowhere near capacity. Auckland City needed more sewage capacity, went to North Shore and said, we will pay you the cost of you taking our poo because that will save us building a sewage works of our own for 20 years. North Shore said, no, we're not taking Auckland's poo. Crazy, right? Oh, and the nine councils were all borrowing money offshore. They all had their finance departments and were raising money offshore for Auckland. They were literally issuing bonds nine times over. They had nine HR departments in Auckland. So this stuff was crazy, and I'll get to how, cra how, how crazy it was, and no decision could be made. If you were a government, a central government, and you say, well, look, we need to fix the roading and the public transport in Auckland, everyone would just give up because they had to go and convince nine councils of the proposal, and one of them would always object. And the difficulty was there was a regional council that sat over the top. So even if you got, say you were trying to do something in, oh, I don't know, Auckland City, you might get Mayor John Banks, of who it was in those days, to agree, but then you couldn't get the regional council to agree and they'd have the final say-so and veto. Anyway, the Royal Commission came out and they produced their big report and I had made myself, I pushed for this, to be the Minister of Local Government because I knew this report would be landed on the desk, and I figured that the government wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it properly. And I thought I would. And so the report came out. I sat the night that the report arrived with the commissioners, and it was a bit half and half. And I said to them, why didn't you advocate the whole hog? And they said, oh, well, they didn't think that would be politically acceptable but that would be best. And I said, well, let me handle the politics, right? You're supposed to write what's best. 
So I didn't accept their report in full. I accepted there was a problem, but I went the whole nine yards. How do we do it? This is extraordinary. This is the extraordinary power that you have with the government, and, and it relates to what's happening now. I passed legislation in Parliament that fired every person that worked in council in Auckland. Every one of them. I think, there, I think there are eight levels, and I rehired all the, like, bottom five levels the next day. All the managers had to apply for a job. Now, I did that because I didn't want to get caught with big redundancies and all the rest of it for not – I'm not talking council workers. The yeah, ones it's – But are fired with the managers and all that, and I didn't want to be paying redundancy for them. There's no upset over this. I can't believe that we currently have a government that's saying, oh, but they've entered into these contracts. Well, if you think they're wrong, you can go to Parliament and end the contracts. I did. It also meant that all the managers were very keen to work with me because I wasn't changing their job because basically their job was going to run out in 18 months. I'd passed that in legislation. I can't remember the time frame. But basically on a certain day, every job was going to disappear and they'd be re-employed or not. Uh, all the workers went across. All the managers didn't have a job. Do you know how many managers I sacked in Auckland? 2,000. Isn't that extraordinary? Big savings, right? And that was just replication. That was just, you know, there was just no need for them all, right? So um, we produced one structure, uh, one system, one library system, one water system for Auckland, which is, in the scheme of things, a small town. And that was the logic of it. Now, did politicians then get elected and go crazy? Yes. Did they go and spend money in a crazy way? Yes. And the problem, I guess, you could say that they had was, once I'd set that system up, the mayor and the council for Auckland were powerful and could do stuff. They could do good stuff and they could do bad stuff, but they could do stuff. And if you elect people that are going to spend money, they have the ability to spend money. If you met, elect, if you could, you could elect people to do stupid stuff, and they do stupid stuff, and they did. But council now, Auckland now, is in charge of its own destiny. There are terrible things that we discovered as we went through this. I mean, water systems were falling over, water was unfit to drink. There was the small councils actually in New Zealand, because we put such heavy environmental standards on them, they can't meet them. They cannot meet them. They don't have the resources to do it. And you either have to say, look, we're going to have a little council and water that doesn't meet World Health Organization guidelines, or we're going to actually have a bigger council that can afford to treat the water and run a proper water system. That's the reality that we got to in Auckland. Uh, the little councils are all very cute, but if you demand a high standard for your water and for your sewage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's actually got to be a pretty sophisticated council to be able to deliver it. Uh, and that's what we delivered for Auckland. Again, local government is a basket case, but there's no one there thinking you'd fix Auckland by going back to having eight mayors and a chairman run it. Yeah. I suppose 
if uh, yeah, the only way to run those more sophisticated councils on a, on a smaller level and actually have the locals pay for it would be, you know, where's the money going to come from? Maybe they'd be paying less taxes to central government and, and more rates to their council. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like the, the money's got to come from somewhere. So it's essentially is the point, right? So you, that's why to save people money and, and to get the service yeah. they needed. And they quickly hired all their mates again. And uh, we could have, we could have cut, um, we had plans to cut staffing hugely in Auckland through efficiencies. And unfortunately, my political career ended because I was going to pursue that as minister. And I was wanting to greatly restrict the role of local government. I put a paper up to restrict the role of local government to its key functions, not to be able to do anything it chose. It got knocked back at Cabinet. And I put a paper up to limit the ability to just increase rates willy-nilly and increase spending willy-nilly. And that got knocked back to, at, at Cabinet. But I was hopeful of doing that in my second term as Minister. But um, such as politics, I never got the opportunity. And then I had to sit on the sidelines where we elected madmen to run Auckland. And um, Who was that? Who was that? Uh, Len Brown and Phil Goff. All right. You know, I was uh, when preparing I wouldn't for the... have I wouldn't have those two guys run a bath for me. I uh, I looked up just the you know, Auckland City Council just in preparation for this, just very quickly, and it reminded me of that story of the guy with his um hidden thing behind the bookshelf or whatever. Yeah, remember that story? What was that? Yeah. Yeah, maybe explain that to people. I think that's kind of interesting. the hidden thing behind the. Is this his girlfriend? No, didn't Len Brown have like a he used rate payers? Uh, okay, Mayor Len Brown's new office. He had a a bookcase, a private bathroom and dressing room hidden behind a bookcase, and it was and it was used. Um, like I don't know if he used his the council money for it. I'm not sure. I don't know, probably. Look, and what do you do? You know, it's just like we, we the people that put themselves up for politics, the only thing you can do is limit what government can do. And that's what, we, that's what we've got to do. And that's why I started out um, this discussion with saying, well, what do we want local government for and what do we expect it to do? Because right now it just does as it pleases and there's got to be a limit on it. As it stands, by the way, I'd have a minister for local government appoint people to run the councils and I'll hold the central government account for what happens in the local councils because I think it's that dysfunctional. Every council in the country is actually struggling and I can imagine. Um, I, um, Nick Smith and I sacked the environment, uh, can environment Canterbury. So we sacked the elected members and we appointed in commissioners Oh, my goodness. The left all got upset because they wanted to be able to vote and all the rest of it. But, oh, my goodness, we got these caliber people um, to come in and run Environment Canterbury, and they sorted it out. You know, consent times dropped, streamlined, everything became professional. And Nick Smith and myself were responsible for what happened in Canterbury. And people couldn't believe it because it started to work. But they said, oh, well, once you've done this and they've sorted it out, 
and they sorted out, I don't know, two years, and then they had to go, and then we started electing councillors again, and it then starts not working. <laughs> and it's not that it's not democratic, because you can have the minister in charge of the appointment process. You know, that's how we run a government department. And I think that we should sort of run those councils like departments. So you'd have, you know, this many councils and they'd be run as government departments and you'd hold the minister or the government of the day to to account. Just like if, um, you know, the uh, education department or the health department or whatever department is not doing its job, you complain to the minister and the government. Well, you could do the same for local government. And funny enough, I think you'd get more accountability and a better service if you did that than what we have now. This is a very small country. And the idea we have all these elected councillors who actually don't have power because central government's always fiddling with them and changing the law on them. And they have these big, long planning processes. Why? Because central government keeps them under the thumb. Mm. Um, it's a very, very dysfunctional system. Goodness knows why you'd want to be a mayor or, or a councillor in many ways, because you get so limited power uh, to decide things because everything's being mandated from above, from central government. It's literally mandating, you know, what the UN says in this case. Yeah, well, there is, there is, there are benefits. That's why we encourage people, you know. Sure, and you can push back. Yeah, and and I, influence. I, I, I shouldn't be negative, but I do get, I do get annoyed that central government won't allow local councils to be local councils. Yeah, they're not as autonomous as people think they are. No, and that's the same as a school board, you know, like you have a school board, but what decisions does a school board get to make? Actually, very few. And we're doing the same with our local council. So you, you think you're electing a council to represent you for your community, for your town, for your city, but actual fact, the big decision makers is the government of the day and they literally have a jackboot on their throats same as your school because they put the money in i i found it very interesting when i was minister of local government because as minister of local government you're only really responsible for the local government act and whenever i'd go to a big function i wasn't the big banana oh yeah that's the minister of local government who cares about him the big banana was the Minister of Transport and the Minister for the Environment. And funnily enough, for many people, the Minister of Fisheries, because they were having a huge impact. The Minister of Transport was deciding their roading funding and what roads go ahead. The Ministry for the Environment was deciding how they can move, how they can't move, what they can do, what they can't do. And the Minister of Fisheries would be regulating all the or the waterways, you know, the, the the Minister for the Environment is regulating how they're to make decisions over water. Oh, and treaty negotiations. The treaty negotiations would go into a settlement with Iwi and say, we haven't got much money in the, in the pot. How about we give you half the council? Crazy stuff, right? This is, this is why um, local government is a very difficult uh, political place because we pretend it's there to represent the community and implement the community's wishes, but it's being dictated to every which way by ministers and central government. But that said, 
when you look across Auckland, you wouldn't help it if you had out councils. Um, and eight mayors. I mean, no one is suggesting that you do that. And yes, I would decentralise as much as possible. But when you come to a big roading project or a big water project or a big sewage project, they actually serve the whole of Auckland City and its surroundings. So they've got to make a decision across the whole area. And you can't divide that decision across eight jurisdictions because you'll never get agreement. And things just weren't progressing. So I think um, to the extent that the national government, when it was in power, was able to progress a lot of those works in Auckland, that was only made possible by the super city. It wouldn't have happened. Now, before. another topic I guess that we could touch on here is, you know, Auckland, that's Auckland, but the topic of uh, amalgamation of councils has come up. I'm not sure which other parts of New Zealand uh, might be, you know, in that conversation. I guess Christchurch may be. Uh, what's your view on on that. I mean, well, it's up, it's up, it's up to the local community and the central government. For example, you know, you could have a proper royal commission. But um, I myself would like to live in a small town with a small community, and we look after things ourselves. But um, most of the time, we're sort of attached to a big city. Um, and so you end up having to make decisions around the region. And so it's fanciful to think that you could live in a little little town um, using the roads, the waterways, um, the sewage systems, and replicating them for yourself when you're right beside a big city. You just actually hook yourself up, but then you're part of the city. And that's a reality of modern-day living. Um, and so the idea that we have a little parish or a little village able to make decisions on its own uh, is not possible. And the difficulties that we have with poor water and so on and so forth, I think are often overblown. Um, but the, to the extent that we have difficulties that are alarming people, it's where you have small councils because they literally don't have the resources to manage the expense of providing water and sewage and drainage to the level which people expect it and demand it these days. Yeah. There you go. Just reading, there is an article from March this year, which is about uh, Christchurch City Council wanting to, or looking into being a super city, warning New Zealand has hit, hit, uh, reached peak rates so I presume that's with Selwyn or White Womack uh, and the, the surrounding ones. And I also see that Banks Peninsula Council um, got merged they, into. Yes, they went in with, uh, that was a, a vote that they had. So they had a mayor, Bob Parker, for Banks Peninsula. And he said the best thing we can do is to join with Christchurch. They had a vote and they did. And uh, there was a mechanism by which they could do that. And they joined. And then, funnily enough, he became the mayor of Christchurch. <laughs> so um, he became a mayor of their enlarged city. And, of course, and then they had the earthquake. Um, but, yes, uh, uh, you know, look, um, it's fixed. But I think there's a bigger question to ask first, and is what, is you, what do you have local government for? 
What do you expect it to do? What do you expect it to be raising money for? How do you, what do you be expecting it to spend money on? And too much of it now is for fanciful stuff. Yeah, not not art projects when they're in debt. <laughs> no. And, um, you know, our local council here is is spending a lot of money promoting pride projects in our libraries, which is an anathema to me. You know, my little kids go into the local library and you think, oh, this is a nice thing. They're, they're not playing with computers. They're going into the library and they're picking up these books that have been put there by radical uh, transgender theorists. And you complain to the council and they say, no, this is part of their program. And you're thinking, what 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 on earth is a local council doing promoting radical gender ideology? It's not part of their remit, but around the place we see this. So again, I think it comes back to thinking hard about what we expect our government to do. I want them to do as le the least as possible. Um, trouble me the least as possible. And the most that we should be doing is with our friends and our neighbours as a community. And um, it certainly troubles me when they waste their money on fanciful projects. Climate change is another one. You know, the Christchurch City Council got all worried about climate change and they came out and sort of condemned a whole part of their city that was close to the coast, taking the worst scenario of the computer models that even the authors of the computer models said would never happen. And they basically wrote off all those buildings and land saying this is going to be inundated by sea because models. Crazy stuff. There you go, Tane. That was our extended Politicals Explained session on the Super City. I'm sure I haven't convinced any, any, anyone, and it's sort of history for me now. But that's the reason and the logic. Uh, we could have done it a lot better. Uh, I'm very proud of the job that we did and the team that we had because it's a big job. It was the largest uh, merger ever undertaken in Australasia. Huh. I forget uh, how many staff it involved. It was 8,000 staff and the computer systems. And we were finding that, you know, no one had proper records of who was employed. It was pretty run down and difficult. But my team um, did an amazing job and the council workers did an amazing job. I've got to say this. Everyone that I dealt with in the council thought it was a fantastic idea. The councils. Yes, even the ones that lost their job. Because huh. they could see working in the system how it wasn't working. Yeah. And they were quite pleased that, you know, someone came along to do the right thing and take the hit. Um, and that included people that lost their jobs because they could see how dysfunctional it had become. Right. No one, well, not, if, one if not one person, not one person in the council complained to me about the idea. And if you are a, a former council uh, employee and Rodney's not telling the truth and you didn't like it, send us an email. Yeah, please do. And tell me why. Tell us why. Yeah. There you go. Politics explained. Send us a text, 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you, Tane. We'll talk next week. Here on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Got my good friend, Tane Webster. My young good friend, Tane Webster. Mind you, that's most of the population these days. And we're covering off Politics Explained. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. So this week we've had a couple of people email in and they're wanting to know 
What's the deal with politicians or politicians to be, as they were a few weeks ago? Uh, what's the deal with their ability to comment on or not comment on on court cases in light of the recent uh, whistleblower uh, story? Oh, they're very young. Yeah. yeah. MPs as MPs wandering around in the community have every right to free speech that you and I enjoy. So they can talk about anything that they choose. Now, um, different story when you're a minister, because when you're a minister 24-7, essentially you're representing the New Zealand government. And so when you say something, even outside of parliament, you're representing the New Zealand government. And so um, you have to be a lot more careful. And most ministers get caught now and again just by having a casual dinner conversation and saying something untoward. I know I have. Um, but MPs are perfectly free to talk about anything they choose. Uh, obviously, they can't defame someone. Um, now, when it comes to Parliament, it's different. So in Parliament, they enjoy what are called the privileges of Parliament, which have been hard fought for. Um, they can defame people if they choose. Um, they can reveal secrets that other people can't publish. And once they do that, that is able to be reported. So it could be that Tane Webster said in the House yesterday that so-and-so is a terrible person for these reasons. And they are safe from defamation because they're reporting what happened in Parliament. And Parliament is a special place. However, there are rules that are apply in Parliament, and it's called standing orders, and you can Google it and set it, uh, see it. And so the standing orders are the rules that govern Parliament, how we choose a speaker, how we decide who's next going to speak, how long you get to speak. All of that is set out in, um, what do I sort of standing orders? There's also a thing called, speaker's rulings and these are rulings that sort of like common law that has grown up over time as interesting problems have come up in parliament and then a speaker has issued a ruling and if it's a new area or something that's novel and it's considered to be sound judgment then that becomes a speaker's ruling and that too becomes the rule so while you're in parliament you don't have unfettered free speech because you can only speak if the speaker allows you to, and he or she can shut you down. Now, because parliamentary privilege was being abused so much by MPs, uh, they now limit. Uh, a speaker will shut you down if you just go on willy-nilly to defame someone. Uh, it used to be quite respectful when we had the two-party system. With MMP, it sort of broke up a bit and became a bit wild. And so now, um, unless you have a, unless you let the speaker know that you're going to be saying something quite strong about someone, if it was obviously defamatory about your neighbour, for example, the speaker wouldn't let you say it. Also, there's a separation in Parliament between what goes on in the courts and what goes on in Parliament. So the courts can't intrude on Parliament. That's why you can't be prosecuted for defamation or sued for defamation in parliament because the courts have no jurisdiction over what happens in parliament 
Likewise, it cuts both ways. Parliament doesn't get stuck into the courts. That's what we mean by the separation of powers. Parliament makes the laws and the courts interpret them. And there's a clear separation. And you can see why that's important. Because if Parliament started to criticise judges about how they were interpreting a law, the judges wouldn't know how to go about their job because they've got to look at the law as it is written down. And that's what the citizen only has to look at. And so if Parliament wants to get judges to behave in a certain way, then they actually make the law to be a certain way. Now, that's why the Barry Young stuff is potentially problematic because he is before the courts for um, taking this data as a public servant and making it public. And while that's before the courts, an MP is not allowed to talk about it in Parliament. The Speaker would quickly shut them down. For example, you can't stand up as an MP and say, Barry Young is a hero and should not be being prosecuted. I can say that, you can say that, but you can't say that in Parliament because that would be Parliament cutting across the courts. Even as an MP, you might want to be a bit careful about what you said. I myself would say that one, but I wouldn't say it in Parliament. I wouldn't be allowed to. I'd be shut down and sat down on my on my bottom by the Speaker. However, everything else about this can be debated and discussed in Parliament. So the policy that the Health Department's running, the data itself, what the data shows, all that can be discussed in Parliament. No problem whatsoever. So, for example, um, you could stand up in Parliament and say, what's the, what's the policy for uh, prosecuting or taking employment action against whistleblowers in the health department? Um, was this policy applied in the case of Barry Young? Right? Because you're not talking about the court case. Likewise, you could say to the Minister of Health, oh, has the Minister of Health asked officials to check the claims that Mr. Steve Kirsch is making about the data that Mr. Barry Young released to him. No problem whatsoever. Oh my goodness, how good would that question be to ask? Because Steve Kirsch has got the data. He's made some amazing claims. I think he's right. I haven't checked that, but I dare say he's right. So why wouldn't you be, as an MP, asking the Minister of Health, have officials attempted to replicate Mr. Kirsch's analysis? Have they found him to be wrong? If so, in what way? How good would that question be? Because all we've had at this stage is at, at, what is it, at home in an attack on Barry Young. No and safe and effective, no presentation of the analysis of the data. Any MP could stand up and ask that question of the Minister of Health. In Parliament? In Parliament. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's got to be in Parliament. And the Minister has to address it. And so can you imagine the Minister getting up and saying, no, it's never been looked at? Or the Minister gets up and says, yeah, they looked at it, decided there was nothing in it, Oh, can you make that analysis public? Be fantastic, right? Isn't it extraordinary that 
a person who's had an exemplary career, clearly because he keeps getting appointed to these big jobs where security is everything, Barry Young, has made the decision to release the data. He hasn't done this for political reasons. He's done it because he's seriously concerned at what he's seen in that data. It has to be terrible. He has to perceive it as terrible for him to have done this. He hasn't done it maliciously. He's done it because he believes it's in the public interest. He could be wrong, but you can't doubt his sincerity. I mean, you can imagine people with a political agenda don't like this government or don't like the last government leaking stuff, but that's not what's going on here. He wants to alert the public. Steve Kirsch and others get this information and say, yes, there's a signal in here that would appear that people are dying at an increased rate that have taken the jab. No response from the government about that data other than to repeat the sort of religious mantra, the vaccine is safe and effective. None whatsoever. That is calling out from a question from an MP to ask the Minister of Health as the analysis that Mr. Kirsch done been replicated or have the flaws in his analysis been determined by his officials? We're talking one in a thousand people dying from the from one one person dying per thousand jabs. That's what Mr. Kirsch is claiming. Got to be a question in Parliament, or don't they care? Or are they afraid? Afraid, and of course. When you ask a question in Parliament, you'd put that down on notice. Um, you actually have your have to have your party agree to you asking that question. So every party is complicit except New Zealand First. So New Zealand First MP could ask that question. You could slip it in as a clever supplementary. I could be a backbencher in the ACT Party or the Labour Party or the National Party, and there's a question to the Minister of Health about safety, or um, it would have to relate. The primary question has to relate to the sort of subject. And then I could get up and say, and have they done any analysis on this? It would have to be quite careful because a supplementary has to relate back to that primary. And that may not, in the ordinary course of a day's events, happen. There's 12 or 13 questions a day. Primary questions of which there'll be uh, five or six or seven or eight, I can't remember now, supplementaries allowed. So that's how that would work, and there'd be no problem. By the way, there's a restricted number of um, oral questions each day in the House that, how, that the House sits, but there's an unlimited number of written questions that an MP could put in. An MP can put in 400 written questions in a day. I have done that. So those very questions that I asked could be put in by an MP to the minister and they have to be replied to in five working days. No MP needs permission to put in a written question from anyone. The questions go via the speaker's office to the minister. The speaker's office checks that they're in the proper format and form. Can't make allegations and things like that. Very easy to frame a written question 
to ask the Minister of Health, have they tried to replicate Mr. Kirsch's analysis? Have they checked Mr. Kirsch's analysis, et cetera, et cetera? You could put in two dozen questions about that in five minutes. Not been done. Tragic, isn't it? There is a willful blindness across all our MPs with their head in the sand. Even if you think Kirsch is wrong, still should be wanting to ask that question. Instead, they're running around in peacock hats, you know, singing and dancing in the house, doing hakas, rather than getting down to the things that could be damning out people's health. Anyway, I rambled on, but it's just shocking to me that we have our parliament to hold the government to account. Here's an issue of potentially thousands of New Zealanders dying through a mandated medicine, and no one seems interested, not one MP is interested to put in a parliamentary question. There you have it, Politics Explained with Tane Webster. I'm upset now. I hope I hope you're not, but it makes me angry to think that we've had an election and still there's not been, had this amazing release of information, had this amazing analysis. I haven't been in a position to analyse it and check it, but I can understand what Steve Kirsch has done. It makes sense to me, but I haven't replicated the results. I don't have that ability. But I'm sure the Ministry of Health could do it in a heartbeat. Wouldn't you want to know? How can 120 MPs plus not want to know or not ask on behalf of us. Maybe you should write to your local MP or go and see them and ask them that they put this question in for you. If anyone's interested, text us, email us, and I'll draft up the question. There you have it. Politics Explained. Drop us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Here on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for having me along uh, this morning. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. I loved it. And it's such a pleasure. I enjoyed talking to Gary. I always enjoy talking to Tane Webster. And I feel a bit bad because I get asked about the super city and it's natural to be defensive about your own work. And it's hard to see it um, at a distance and somewhat objectively. It took a lot of effort to do all that. And um, But local government itself is broken, like a lot of government, actually. And uh, I love the mailbag. I love the feedback. So please keep it coming. 2057 for a text. Email me inbox at radio. Have a lovely weekend. Talk next week. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. 